The Nature of Justice Unlike the other talks, this talk will be mostly philosophically based. As a warning, I suggest as a prerequisite, prerequisite uh, listening to the first seven talks. A suggested prerequisite is to read Plato's Republic. This talk will dip into political topics, and many of the ideas proposed will be antithetical to modern society. Um, the idea behind this talk is not to convert you to the political views that I share, but to show you the form of the good, and to show you the form of justice. So Socrates stated that philosophers are the only ones with access to the forms. Uh, and one of the forms they had access to was the form of the good. In the visible spectrum, the good was light. And in the sort of invisible spectrum, or the spectrum of kind of thought, the form of the good was virtue and wisdom. And only philosophers could access those forms and see what was good in things. I do not have uh, pretend to have access to forms, but I will say that Socrates had access to forms. And I am merely regurgitating some of the ideas of Socrates. So some questions uh, um, basically to think about um, and that we should discuss during this talk. What is the nature of justice? Is it akin to benefiting friends and harming one's enemies? Um, what if one is wrong about who is a friend and who is an enemy? What is the difference between justice and revenge? What about justice in the name of justice? Is justice rule by the strong? Uh, is justice rule by law? If laws are unjust, is it okay to obey unjust rule? Can one strive for justice while performing unjust acts? Meaning, what degree of violence or harm is acceptable? Uh, to go further along those lines, what separates a terrorist and a so-called freedom fighter? What would separate social justice protests from the January 6th insurrection? From a terrorist who does a terrorist attack on random people in public? Um, is it justice to inflict suffering and punishment on others when your own sort of group is attacked? Is Robin Hood a form of justice? Or is that something that arises in the presence of injustice? Is it just in itself? And what does fairness mean? So a lot of times when you look up the meaning of justice, there's the idea of fairness. Can, does fairness mean equality? Equality of what? Equality of resources? Equality of offerings? Can equality truly be present in a city where many people exist of different abilities and talents? Can fairness be a state that is consistently maintained? And lastly, can one benefit at uh, um, the expense of many in a just city? Meaning, in a city that is just, can the few benefit compared to the majority? And can justice be present in a just, injustice be present in a just city.
to really appreciate uh, these dialogues and these definitions, uh, you really have to go through Plato's dialogues. So this talk is sort of a Cliff's Notes version. Cliff's Notes version. So you're getting the shortcut. Understand that by hearing the shortcut, you may not appreciate how many arguments and counterarguments and how much rationalizing and logic went into creating some of these definitions. I will attempt to do it for uh, one of the virtues, but um, the idea behind it is really, if you are interested in this material, you should read it all of Plato's dialogues to kind of really get an understanding. And if you read these dialogues and you understand all the arguments and counterarguments and how Socrates defined things, you will really have a greater respect for each of the individual definitions that Socrates comes up with and how precise and distinct and how thoroughly thought through they are. If you are only hearing this Cliffsnose version, version, you'll be like, oh, I don't know about that. And you may disagree with it, but that is not because you are truly informed. It is because you haven't you know, read through uh, Plato's dialogues and heard the 50 different arguments about arguing this way or arguing that way which they go through in each dialogue. So Socrates maintains that justice is what is present when three other virtues are present. This is the same in an individual, and this is the same in a city. Um, so the three virtues that are, have to be present, wisdom, courage, and moderation, and the fourth virtue would be justice. And justice was what was found when the other three were present. So I will go through the definitions that Socrates uses. Uh, understand again that these are the Cliff's Notes version, and that if you wish to truly disagree with this, I suggest you read the dialogues and go through how difficultly uh, it was came to this conclusion. So in wisdom, wisdom is that particular branch of knowledge which informs you how to make good relations within and without. So for a state, maintaining good relations with, with other states and maintaining good relations within your particular state. As a person, maintaining regulation between the body, the spirit, and the appetites and maintaining relations between yourself and other people. Courage. He defines courage as the preservation of belief inculcated by law through education about what things should be feared and preserved in spite of pain, pleasure, desire, and fear. And the key word is preservation. Courage was a form of preservation, uh, that you preserve these things in spite of everything else. Moderation, he defined as the friendly and harmonious relations between the parts. So in a city, it would be between the ruled and the ruler. And in a single person, it would be towards you know, the mind and spirit versus the appetite parts. So the friendly and harmonious relations between the parts. And justice, justice as defined by Socrates was each person doing their own thing, not taking what belongs to anyone else except what belongs to them and not receiving anything else but what belongs to them. Uh, so we'll start with courage. So you know, just to give you an idea of the different arguments, uh, the question is, what is the nature of courage? So if you're the smallest man in a bar and you go pick a fight with the biggest man, is that courage? Um, if you're 
an army fighting a battle, and you seek glory, and you break away from the group, and you launch an attack on an enemy by yourself, uh, is that courage? Especially if that endangers the group. Uh, when it's time for the army to retreat, you decide to disobey and stay behind and keep fighting. Is that courage? Uh, can an animal show courage? Can a child show courage? If someone is just defending other people, is that courage? And so the idea was that, you know, they went through all the different arguments and came upon this definition. The preservation of belief inculcated by law through education about what things should be feared and preservation of it in spite of pain, pleasure, desire, and fear. When you add the parts of desire and pleasure, the idea is courage is sometimes not doing something, but refraining from doing something, meaning it would give you pleasure to do something, but you stay steadfast and do not do it. And it would give you, and it's something you desire, but you hold back from it because you fear, uh, uh, you know through education what should be feared. And in spite of pain, you know, uh, so, so your self-personal injury, and fear, fear of what may come. A form of political courage might be in the sense of desiring change, but resisting the urge for a quick solution and resisting the urge towards violence. So there are lots of people crusading for social justice. There are many people who are doing so who are on the impatient side who are tired of waiting and have said, this hasn't worked so far, let's try a more radical path. And so they have uh, um, they have not preserved their will to stay away from uh, sometimes committing injustice, uh, which is why sometimes when you look at the social justice protests, you have to look at, back at how it was done a generation ago. So people like Nelson Mandela, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, staying just and not performing any unjust acts in spite of injustice, remaining law-abiding, or at least a sort of civil disobedience rather than a violent disobedience. So in Plato's dialogue, one of the first things that was proposed as justice was benefiting one's friends and harming one's enemies. So Socrates first asks, what if you are wrong about who an enemy is and who is a friend? Meaning do not some people appear to be your friends, but in turns out they are your enemies? And some people who appear to be your enemies turns out to be your friends? And the idea is our rulers always wise about which one is which. And so this is why justice is more than benefiting friends and harming enemies. And so the question becomes, what is the difference between justice and revenge? Meaning you see people in the streets marching for justice, or in a movie, someone's been wronged and you say, we're going to go look for justice and they go seek to punish the people they think that should be punished, or they're seeking to lash out. And so the question is, this is a form of justice that we look at and that is that first possible definition, 
benefiting one's friends and harming one's enemies. So the question becomes, what is the difference between justice and revenge? As that James Bond movie where he was uh, chasing the guy in North Korea says, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And so what is the difference between justice and revenge? Is there a difference? Socrates answered that what makes justice different from revenge is that justice seeks the improvement of whoever it is performed upon. It is akin to a dog who poos inside your house and you punch the dog not to seek revenge against the dog, but to improve the dog so that he does not poo on the floor in the future. If a child misbehaves, you punish the child so that his character improves. You don't punish the child uh, to seek a sense of revenge. And so this is one of the key precepts of justice. Justice seeks the improvement of the recipient. We should understand that much of the social justice movement and sort of cancel culture and all these kind of things, understand that they are not necessarily seeking justice. They are seeking revenge. They are seeking to harm their enemies. Meaning, if we cannot put police in jail, let's get rid of them by getting rid of their jobs. We're not seeking to improve the police. We're seeking to get rid of them. In the same way, cancer culture, uh, um, if we can't get rid of them through legal means, let's get rid of them however we can through non-legal means, a sort of exile or a sort of shunning. Note that this itself may not be unjust, uh, but you have to delineate what are your motives in this scenario. Are your motives to improve the person or are your motives to punish the person? One of the ways that sometimes uh, more uh, biting examples is that of how do you deal with racists? And so there's a sort of movement of anti-racism where you confront them and sort of uh, you hate these people, uh, these racists. And something I've noticed is that uh, some of the people who are anti-racist are similar in hatred to the people who are racist themselves. They just hate a different group of people, but that hate resides in them just as much as anyone else. And so there was a saying, I believe it's in the first line of the Dhammapada, the, the Buddhist text, hatred never ceases by hatred alone. By love alone does it cease. And so your racist is not approved, is not improved when you do these sort of cancel or, 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 or sequestering or exile or any of these sort of tactics, these hostile tactics. Racism ultimately only improves uh, through love because hatred is only improved by love. And so you look at uh, uh, Nelson Mandela, he was released from prison and he didn't try to get rid of white culture. He didn't try to tear down any of their statues. He didn't try to rip apart their culture. Uh, um, he embraced rugby. If you watch that movie Invictus, he embraced the white sport and championed it. 
because he knew it was sacred to them. And so the idea is he didn't try to take down uh, uh, what he thought you know, were the other people. He embraced it. And as a result, he was embraced in return, or at least tolerated, uh, so that people didn't oppose his rule and try to revolt. In a sense, his method is what improved people, which is why it was ultimately a very just way of doing things. I like to say that racism is really a state of ignorance. And when I say ignorance, it is a state where you are ignorant of the other type of race and what they are like, meaning you have a fear of them uh, because you really just don't know them. And so when people mix, meaning you know some neighbors who are black or Arab or Muslim or, or of a different race, and you get, to, you get to kind of figure out that they're people just like you, you no longer hold prejudice and hatred towards them. There's many movies and stories to kind of go through that. But the idea is knowledge cures racism. Once you mix and mingle with another group and you see that they are people just like yourself, that cures you of your racism. And so the way to cure racism is through knowledge because it is a state of ignorance. Um, the other ways we are trying to use to cure racism, uh, they are sorts of revenge, not necessarily justice. There's a very interesting argument between Thrasymachus and Socrates in the beginning of the book where Thrasymachus is a rival kind of uh, philosopher and he's trying to make a point and Socrates, of course, is just destroying his arguments. And Socrates says, you know, if you really know, I wish, I wish for you to tell me. And if you are, and then, and Thrasymachus says, well, if you're wrong, you know, you should pay some sort of penalty. And Socrates says, uh, um, of course, I should pay a penalty. The penalty that is most fit for someone who is ignorant is to learn. And so the penalty for someone who is racist and ignorant should be to learn. And so the idea of sending you know, police people to jail or sending other people to jail, is that a form of justice? And do you truly believe that to be just? Uh, do you believe in the justice of the prison system? Meaning, do you believe that the prison system improves people so that when they go in, they're one way, and they went, when they come out, they are better? There was an interesting discussion in my meditation group about uh, uh, Donald Trump and prison. So one of the members felt that um, Donald Trump, he would be much happier if Donald Trump sent to prison. He was of liberal persuasion. And so I asked him, how do you feel about the prison system? Does it really improve people? And said, of course, no, it's the prison system is unjust and all that. And so uh, another individual brought up the point that Hitler was once sent to prison. And so Hitler went to prison and he wrote Mein Kampf and he came out and he murdered you know, many millions of people. And I said, do you want Donald Trump to do that? to go to prison, become radicalized, and come out and become dictator and do all sorts of terrible things. So what is the nature behind the emotion which you are seeking? Are you seeking to punish uh, the other person or are you seeking to improve them? Uh, because justice should improve the recipient. 
the last part of our courage was that in the preservation in spite of fear or desire, which means that performing justice should have the absence of anger, the absence of anger and desire, uh, because that would be kind of part of courage. You are not angry and you're not kind of greedy for something uh, in, if you are trying to behave in a just way. And one of the classic examples of this, if you you know watch a lot of Western movies, was the idea is when you ever had a character who is the good guy and he's trying to find his enemy, always at the end of the movie he'll catch up to him and he'll have him at his mercy. And there's always a moment where he thinks about taking revenge upon him, where he points the gun and the enemy sometimes even goads him and says, go ahead and shoot me. And he stops. And he stops and he binds him and he puts his handcuffs on him and he turns him into the law. Uh, he is not acting from a sense of anger or desire. And that is the nature of justice. He does not hang him privately by a tree. He turns him into the law. The law may still kind of hang him, but the difference is that the hanging is done by a neutral third party, the state. And the third party theoretically should be blind in the sense that they're not prejudiced in any way when they're enforcing justice. In that sense, an eye for an eye really is a form of justice, but it requires a third party to be administering it, uh, to differentiate it from revenge. Meaning, if you go out, if your eye is poked out and you go try and poke the other person's eye out, that would be closer to revenge. There would be nothing to differentiate that from revenge. But if the state poked out his eye, that would be a form of justice. I mentioned this to someone and they said, well, what about cutting off hands and all these kind of terrible things? And the idea is brutal violence should in general be a last resort. Uh, um, you should be able to improve people without crippling them forever. Meaning you don't want them to be useless parts of society because you mutilated them in such a way. Um, but if someone cannot stop stealing, and the only way to prevent him from stealing was to cut off his hands, you know, it's not um, it's not a great way to do it. But uh, um, uh, um, sometimes things, you know, like I said, these things should always be of the last resort. That wraps up courage. So we will move down to wisdom. And so one of the next uh, uh, proposed questions was, proposed to Socrates is, um, what is justice but rule by the strong? And this was Thrasymachus' argument. And I believe in another dialogue, someone said the same thing, that justice was ruled by the strong. Um, there is a funny argument in a different dialogue where Socrates says, uh, um, you know, the man was a rich man. He said, the strong are the ones who rule and they should be the one uh, that is just that they are in charge. And uh, Socrates uh, very wryly observes that, you know, you look like a pasty old man who lives a luxurious life and you don't look quite strong to me. Your slaves, on the other hand, who are carrying you around, they look like young, really strong people. If the rule should be of the strong, uh, then technically all your slaves should be ruling over you. Isn't that right? And the guy was like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. But there was something in that uh, um, that one person should rule over others. And 
uh, they kept going in that dialogue. Uh, um, so there's basically some sort of virtue that should make one person a ruler compared to another. And what is that virtue? And so the virtue, uh, as seen by Socrates, was wisdom. So wisdom is the characteristic of what should one should be doing who is ruling. A just city requires wisdom and should be ruled by the wise, just as a just person should be ruled by his rational mind. In such a sense, uh, it isn't just anyone who should decide what is just and what is unjust. Only the wise and virtuous should decide that. And in general, it should not be left to ordinary people to decide what is just and unjust. Meaning, if anyone can just decide which laws to follow, which laws are unjust, that would be ultimately chaos. Only the wise should be the ones who figure justice. And so wisdom, as he defined it, was um, the knowledge which informs of how to maintain relationships with relationships between yourself and other people and also within yourself. And so many people enter justice or many people enter politics without first gaining wisdom. And this was something that was railed against both by Socrates and also Confucius. Uh, so Confucius, there's a dialogue which said something like, do not worry about whether there is a position available for you. You should worry most of all whether you are worthy of the position. And so there were cases where his disciple, um, you know, wanted to go and, and administer in government and serve. And Confucius said, you really should study a bit longer about virtue. Uh, Socrates said the same thing. There were several Socratic di dialogues where, you know, some young man thought he could improve the city and want to be in charge of government. And so Socrates was quite severe on him, saying, what are your qualifications? What have you studied? Economics, justice, what is good, what is bad, morality, all these kind of things. And basically, the young man didn't know any of this. And so Socrates thought that wisdom and virtue and all what is good and what is bad and what is just, all these should be learned before you decide to enter politics and opine on these sort of things. And you should always, the same with Confucius, see whether you are qualified to lead before you think you should lead. In the ideal government, um, the people who rule are virtuous and wise. And so in Confucian philosophy, this is thought of as the kingly way. Uh, so that there, there was a difference between ruling by law and ruling by virtue. And so the most, uh, the worst form of rule was kind of chaos, where everyone just kind of, there was kind of no one in charge and it was kind of anarchy. Uh, um, when you had someone emerge who was strong, they ruled by fear. Uh, the same way Machiavelli, it's better to be feared than loved. So you punish people and you kind of uh, were harsh and you weren't always kind of consistent. And so everyone just kind of feared you no matter what. The next step above that was to rule by law. So, so you have punishments and your rewards, and they're encoded in the law. And uh, um, so, you know, this was sort of the legalist point of philosophy. Have all sorts of different punishments and grades and sort of different rewards and, and different kind of ranks. And the idea is promote and demote and punish. And this would kind of ensure somewhat of an orderly society. 
The problem with this was that when the law went away, or when the law was missing, or when the state was absent, people would misbehave right away when nothing was there to stop them. And so the step above that, what the Confucians called the kingly way, or the way of the sages, was to rule by virtue. Uh, so you yourself developed virtue as a ruler, and you embodied it, and you tried to spread it to the people who were underneath you, and they spread it to the people who were underneath them. And so every single person tried to, um, they were the, 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 the branches of your virtue, and you were the root as the leader. And so what does that look like in real life? So if we take the example of, you know, uh, um, Colombia, where you have farmers kind of growing cocaine. So if you were to apply a legalist perspective, you would do what they are doing now. You make cocaine illegal, and then you try to stamp it out. So they burn fields, they arrest people, uh, sometimes they're executing people, uh, and things like that. Um, to rule by virtue would be to... to um, say instead of ruling by law to convince the farmers that it was not in their interest to grow cocaine to say this is not a good thing you are doing it harms other people and harms nation and for the good of it to convince them by nature of virtue that they should not grow it and so the legalist way does not work too well they're always burning crops and it pops up somewhere else it's sort of, uh, um, you know, it's hit and miss, and it's always, it always continues. It's never been quite successful. But if you were to convince them at the root that this was the wrong thing to do, they would stop doing it. That would be the difference between the kingly way. There is a, a footnote I have to put on that, where, where Confucius said the first thing you have to do is always uh, make sure that people have enough. So you cannot drive them towards virtue if they do not have enough meaning they have to be all be fed, and they all kind of have to have a living if you wish to drive them towards virtue, meaning you can't drive them towards virtue if they're hungry, or if they're starving, or if they're needy. Um, so if you look at Amish farmers, on the other hand, they don't grow cocaine, at least that, not that I know of. And so there's no need for it. They have no need of such things. Uh, so why is it that if they have no need, someone else would have a need. Meaning they need to grow food because they need to eat it. Um, if they didn't need other things, they wouldn't need cocaine. They wouldn't need money that the cocaine brings. I will make the comment here that nation uh, America is generally a nation of law rather than justice. And sometimes justice is sacrificed in order to uphold law. Law has a tendency here to be unflexible, inflexible, and justice, I would say, is more of a transient state that if the other virtues aren't present, it fades away. And if the other virtues are present, it's there. Uh, but because the focus is on law rather than justice, it is not always successful. In other states, even uh, states like the Taliban or where you're doing tribal justice, sometimes that is actually closer to what the nature of justice is, meaning your punishments fit the crime. Uh, um, not always the chopping of the hands, but in the sense that sometimes, uh, uh, you know, if there are two, there's a funding party and uh, a defendant, uh, there's compensation and there's some sort of proportional punishment uh, where, you know, the parties are satisfied. 
And it's not always, even though it's, it looks barbaric from a modern society point of view, in some sense they are happy with it and they do feel justice is present. I will also comment that wisdom is generally not present in our uh, nation's leaders. And the main reason is they are not chosen for wisdom. They are also not chosen for competence or necessarily virtue. The main reason our leaders are elected are for their professed political views. I, I use the word professed because often we don't actually know who they are and what they want and what they actually mean. And the other thing they are chosen for are the promises they would do to most voters. Uh, their telegenic appearance, how they speak, and all these kind of things that uh, are, use, are useful only to sort of convince people uh, who do not look too deeply. This is why when I read Plato, this, or The Republic, for a third time, this last time I came to the conclusion uh, that basically uh, democracy is inc incompatible with being a truly just state. Meaning there were different types of states that uh, Socrates talked about. Basically, uh, um, you know, the philosopher king was the best, the second best was oligarchy, and the third was democracy. And that democracy was uh, um, a state of freedom. So freedom was the cry and everyone wanted to do what they wanted. You had a great variety of people and a great variety of constitutions. Often there were some things that were ruled by lot so that anyone could kind of be a part of it. And the leaders, all they needed to do was dissuade the people, uh, persuade them or, or bribe them or cajole them or, or uh, um, have some sort of mob backing. And the idea is these are the people who ruled, not people who were necessarily wise. The people who wanted to rule in turn were people who sought uh, personal benefit or people who sought power. In the truly just city and state, it was basically a philosopher king who ruled. And so this is where he felt that, in theory, a monarchy type of system was superior to a democracy. And I've come to kind of agree with this. So the idea is if you look at the different systems, there is an inherent efficiency when one person decides versus where many have to decide. And if you have one good person who is elected, it is easier to have good rule than if you have 10 people who are elected, or maybe only, you know, if you're really good and seven or eight of them are good. And if you have 100 people, or 500 people, or 1,000 people elected. Of that 1,000, how many are good and virtuous and wise? The idea is the wise and the virtuous are few in number. And so when you have many people serving, the chances of them being good and wise decrease significantly. And it's also a way in the efficiency of how things work when one person has to decide versus many. I like to use the example of if I go out to eat by myself, I can order, eat my food, and be done maybe, you know, 25, 30 minutes. If I go with five people and eat, I will probably be there an hour. And if I go with 300 people to go out to eat, we will be there the whole day because it's a wedding. And so democracy is just less efficient compared to the others. And so what he said about the different systems <clears throat> was that when government was good, when the people were wise and virtuous who were ruling, the philosopher king was the best. The second best was oligarchy. 
and the worst was democracy. When government was corrupt and the people were bad, the worst <clears throat> was tyranny. Second worst was oligarchy, and the least worst when things were bad was democracy. Uh, because essentially, your power was divided, it wasn't as efficient, and so evil could not be uh, perpetrated in the maximum worst way. The other comment I will make about the philosopher king <clears throat> is that Socrates felt that the one who is most fit to rule would not want to rule. Meaning someone who is truly just who is ruling would not use his power to benefit himself or his family. And because he did that, he would be sacrificing his personal affairs for the nature of the state. And so the philosopher king, uh, because he did not want to rule, because he knew the and understood the burdens of office, he would not he would not do it willingly. And so he had to be compelled to rule. Meaning, in the name of justice, his freedom had to be curtailed, and he had to be forced to rule, even though he was something he did not want to do. And so this is why, in some sense, democracy is incompatible with justice, because you would have to take away people's freedom for justice to occur. Since we are talking about wisdom, I will mention something about the nature of the prison system. And so the idea is the prison system here is not just. Uh, we're not necessarily reforming people, and we're not necessarily improving them. Sometimes they go to prison and they come out and they're worse. And sometimes we sentence them to a certain role, uh, but we let them out before they have reformed or, or because their time is up. And so the idea is to create a prison system of such nature that people are being improved when they go in there. Uh, and so a prison system ideally should be closer to a school in the sense that the people who go there are ignorant. They are ignorant of what is good and they are ignorant of what is evil. And the primary punishment for someone who is ignorant should be, as Socrates says, to learn. So a prison should really resemble a school where people are being taught philosophy, what is good, what is bad, that, that benefiting people and living in harmony with man is good and that harming people is bad and evil. And so your, if your prison is of such a nature, the idea would be to create a prison system where even if you sent someone innocent inside, when he was released, he will have become a better person. That it's an education system where you know, people are learning philosophy or religion and they are improving on the way out. Socrates did say something about you know, there were some people who were incurable, and they were a, a very detrimental harm to society. Um, that they were, you know, psychopaths or serial killers or things like that, where you could not help avoid uh, killing them. Uh, but the idea is that should be very few number. The rest you should either teach and reform, or else uh, exile and sequester. But a key is they should not be released without reforming. Meaning the whole nature and point of justice is to improve the recipient. And so if you are not improving them, we are not kind of enforcing justice. The next characteristic of justice is moderation. As I mentioned, moderation was a harmony between the subjects, between the ruler and the ruled, and I would also include the rich and the poor. 
So in Chinese culture, there's a, a proverb where whenever some work had to be done, the rich provided money and the poor provided labor. And so the idea is everyone did their part. In America, there's that very famous saying of John F. Kennedy, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And so the idea is all must contribute, rich and poor, uh, everyone. This is where Moism, uh, uh, the philosophy of Mo, Master Mo, uh, he has this idea of universal love. And that he said that if this were present, this is the backbone of a good society. Uh, to love other people's fathers as your father, to love other people's brothers as your brothers, to love their cities as your cities, to love their states as your states. This was the center of a universal city. This was the center of uh, um, a prosperous kind of a state. And so if you loved other brothers as your brothers, you will not try to harm or steal from them or benefit yourself at their loss. If you loved other people's states the way you loved your state, uh, you would try to benefit them the same way you benefited yourself. You would not try to profit at their loss or at their harm. Unfortunately, in modern society, that love is missing. And so you have the rich who sometimes disdain the poor and think of them as lazy or entitled. You have poor people who hate the rich, and you look at them as parasites and schemers. And there is a lack of mutual love, and there is plenty of hatred going in both directions. Uh, moderation would require that each person, the rich and the poor, they did their own part as citizens of the state. This brings up the question of fairness. So often in modern thoughts of justice, there's this idea of fairness. And the question is, what does that mean, fairness? Does that mean equal division of resources? And that can, can that really be done and sustained? So there's a great mantra on the left of tax the rich, uh, take what they have and re redistribute to the poor. Uh, reparations or, or different ways of transferring money from rich to poor people. And the question is, is that really beneficial for society? In the sense of, is giving money people necessarily going to be helpful? Is it going to be beneficial in that is it is going to be sustainable? Will it lead to some sort of long-term change or will nothing change at all? And so this is an interesting theoretical question and I think it has been answered in history as to whether or not that can be done. The society I would actually look back to is Sparta. So, so uh, Lycurgus, uh, who is thought to be the founder of the kind of the great classic Sparta, the golden age of Sparta. Um, at that time, there were rich and poor in Sparta. And Lycurgus basically uh, said, let's even it all out. So we'll draw up the state, divide all the lands equally amongst all the families, and that each man will have the same plot of land uh, to live on. So the rich will give up what they had, and they will share it with the poor, and everyone will have an equal share, and everyone will be an equal citizen who has to do their own uh, do their own part. And for many years, Sparta prospered. Sparta became the strongest uh, Greek city, the Greek city-state in the land, 
and their military was uh, first and foremost. And so what happened? And the idea is if you understand what happened, you will understand why uh, um, it would be difficult to sustain this ever. So meaning even if you divided everything fairly, uh, um, the question is, could it be sustained? And in the end, it could not. And one thing did it. And one tiny rule change basically caused this to happen. So they said the entire collapsing of the system uh, began with one single rule change. Uh, one of the E4s, one of the officials in Sparta, he had an estrangement with his son. And so he modified the law uh, with a few people who kind of supported him after they were convinced by him. He modified the law such that he could give his land away to someone else and not to his son. And basically, this was what opened the floodgates. So he started by giving his land to his son, and then someone else decided they didn't want to give it to some, their son, and they gave it to someone else. And basically, this became a way of buying land, meaning if you could give your land away to someone else, you didn't necessarily have to have a transaction attached to it formally, uh, but a, a transaction could theoretically be made and as soon as that happened, once no one was bound to the land, the rich became rich again and the poor developed. So you had rich and poor again, in spite of what they did. And so the idea is, even if you took, uh, um, and, and they have modern examples of this, I think in England and, and in Russia, you know, a few hundred years ago, where you tried to divide up land and what happened was uh, some people were more industrious than others and they you know, were better at farming. And so they bought the land of the poor who then were forced to work as serfs or, or kind of you know, poor labor or, or wage labor. But the idea is that you cannot stop uh, um, uh, inequality of riches. You cannot stop the development of separate rich and poor unless you bound land to their family and, the, and you had to bind it so they had to pass it down. And so without that land binding, there's no way you can, you can maintain an equal society at all times. And since we're not talking in modern days of redistributing land, you're just talking about redistributing money, you will still never be able to do that because you would have to say, everyone has to maintain X amount of money in their bank account at all times. They cannot go above or below. Uh, so in a modern market economy, this would be impossible. And so the idea is you will have rich and you will have poor. There's no way around it. Uh, if you give the poor money, they may still stay poor because they do not know how to manage it. They do not have the wisdom of what to do with their money. And so the question becomes, <clears throat> can you have justice even though there is a rich and poor divide? And I think I've seen examples of this where uh, in, the, in an article in The Economist, uh, they talked about climate controls and, and proposals uh, in the United Kingdom. And they had different ideas which they proposed to people. And so for their personal lives, they talked about restricting meat and restricting travel. And so one way to do it was to price it. So you increase the price of meat so that it was a much higher price for everyone. Or you rationed it. And basically, in the poll, they preferred rationing. Uh, so rationing would be essentially a form of moderation, uh, meaning everyone gets a fair share. If you did, if you all you did was raise the price, 
And basically, the rich people would still be able to have as much as they wanted, and the poor people would basically only get a certain amount. But if you rationed it, meaning everyone could have 12 chicken wings and everyone could have two turkeys or one cow or half a leg of this or you know something like that, basically there was a sense of equality. Theoretically, obviously, a black market would develop and rich people could still get as much as they wanted. Um, but that would be sort of a form of moderation, harmony between rich and poor. There was also another article in The Economist where it talked about uh, uh, an employment practice that was present in Sweden and Denmark, and it was called collective bargaining. So the idea is they didn't have unions there, but every year or every couple of years at the beginning of the year, the owners of the company and leaders of the workers got together and they bargained and they said, what will wages be, what will, uh, what will benefits be, and what will all these kind of things. And they came to a collective agreement. And so they said in Denmark and Sweden, you had people working at McDonald's who earned 22 euro an hour and they had full benefits. And at the same time, you had no unions. And you had no unions and the employment was at will so that it was the best of both worlds where uh, um, an employer could fire anyone whenever they wanted. But all the workers, in turn, were treated very well. And so this, was a, this, I would say, is a form of moderation, a form of the good, if you want to look at it that way, a form of moderation, moderation which would be present in justice. And so Machiavelli, in his Republic, he described um, what made the Roman Republic so strong. And he said what was an essential thing was the fight between uh, the senators and the tribunes. Um, I believe it was the tribunes. But the, but the idea was uh, their model, America's model of government and the Western model is based sort of on the Roman one, where you have a house of representatives in present time and senators. And in Roman days, the equivalent of the house of representatives, I believe it was the tribunes, they represented the poor. And the senators represented the rich. And then you had this fight between them. And this was the essential force which glued the republic together. This collective bargaining where, where the, electives, the elective representatives of the poor and the rich gathered. And they came to an agreement about what was fair for each side. In modern day America, unfortunately, we don't have that. Uh, um, so senators and also the House of Representatives all represent the rich. <laughs> so the rich have bought in everybody. Uh, um, and so uh, uh, the poor don't have a voice. Uh, or, or their voice is only heard when they get angry and march uh, uh, and vote. But all other times, everyone else just has the ear of the rich. And so it would actually probably be better uh, to go back to what that Roman, tra Roman tradition was, where only rich, rich people would go to their senators. There's far fewer richer people than poor people, so there are far fewer senators uh, than House of Representatives. Uh, so the idea is, if you were a rich person and you had a problem, you went to one of the two senators in your state and you spoke to them. You had better access because there were fewer of you, and then there was also fewer of them. If you were a wealthy corporation, you also kind of went to the senators. And if you were kind of a working class people, and if you were poor, you went to your house of representatives. And they represented you and no one else. And there were many of them, so you could you know, generally find one in your area, whereas the senators would have to travel to, uh, so the rich would have to travel to find their senators but that would not be a problem for them.
And so you would have this fight between senators and House of Representatives as a sort of collective bargaining between rich and poor in the United States. And that would lead to a much greater harmony. That would lead to moderation, which is a form of justice. I would add also the practice of noblesse oblige from in ancient Europe, where generally the people who were nobles were supposed to have, they had a duty to kind of look after their presence, look after the people who worked under them. Um, so you had this sometimes in uh, old America, we have stories of, you know, the boss heard that one of the workers was doing well and he gave him a big, you know, think of money and, and helped his children in the hospital or did this or that. And that was just kind of part of life. Uh, so they felt that they had a role where you had to help people, um, that there was an obligation between the classes. I would add that both sides have this obligation. So there's a great, um, there's a great text in Mencius where he says, um, you know, it is wrong. Uh, uh, so when the king has riches, he does not share them with the people. Uh, the lower, the people who are lower uh, criticize the people who are above. And they criticize the king. And he says, it is wrong for the people to criticize the king. At the same time, it is wrong for the king not to share his riches with people. So in Confucian philosophy and tradition, the idea was that ritual and etiquette were key to the nature of justice, in the sense that there was everyone had a role they had to fulfill, son, father, citizen, servant of the state, uh, and then the ruler. So the ruler was the intermediary between heaven and earth. And so just as he, ha he had a role the same as anyone else, he was supposed to do sacrifices, he was supposed to please heaven, and he was supposed to take, um, manage the ministers above. The ministers, on the other hand, had their own kind of duties they were supposed to manage. And just as ministers had their duties, everyone below them had their duties to manage. And it kept going down and down until you reached the citizen, and the citizen had their own duties to manage, meaning they were supposed to be respectful uh, and obey the state. And even your individual citizens, they had their duties in their own individual households as father, son, brother, wife, and all these kind of things. And the idea is everyone had a role. And this was the importance of ritual in maintaining harmony. Um, so there's an interesting Confucius story, and I thought this really kind of illustrated uh, what I thought was, you know, what important about this sort of ritual. So a student asks, goes up to Confucius and says, you know, uh, um, that official in our territory, uh, in, in Lu, uh, was it, is it true that when he uh, did this after the, the, uh, the funeral arrangements, didn't that go against ritual? And so he says, he's basically saying, you know, didn't this guy do something wrong? And so Confucius says, I don't know. And then the student's shocked. And he goes outside and talks to another student and says, here, I thought Confucius knew everything. I finally found something that Confucius does not know. And so the other student is very curious now. And he says, well, what did you ask him? I asked him, you know, is it wrong that this official did that? And he went against ritual when he did this. And then the other student says, let me go ask. And he goes up to Confucius and says, is it wrong uh, to do this after a funeral? And Confucius says, yes, it is wrong. It is against ritual. And then so he, the student comes out and says, no, Confucius knew your question was wrong. And, and he says, it is against ritual 
to criticize the senior officials where you live. And so when he asked Confucius, is it wrong for them to do that? If Confucius answered yes, he would have been going against ritual in criticizing the senior official. So this older student told him, it was not your, it was a wrong question. Uh, it was not, um, you should not have asked him to criticize the senior official uh, because that would have been Confucius going against ritual. And so this would lead to the modern example of the police officer and our common citizens who are sometimes not happy with police officers these days. I've watched many of these videos where they have these kind of, you know, what ends up in a horrible kind of encounter between police and people who are resisting the police. And basically there's always, there's always a sense of disrespect when it starts and it always escalates from there. Meaning the police officer pulls up and it says, the other person says, you have no right to stop me or I don't have to show you that, or I don't have to show you my ID, or something like that. And it always just escalates. It escalates with more and more anger, and more, and to the point where it always ends in violence and something kind of terrible happening. And so I would say what is going on is the same thing as what Menchie said. Uh, basically, both sides are incorrect. Uh, so the citizen should give respect and obey the police officer. In turn, police officer uh, uh, should kind of behave in a gentle way towards a citizen as much as he can. Uh, so I met a man who is a, a, a black man, and his, I have always found his story very interesting. So he is an uneducated man. When I say he is an uneducated man, he is actually illiterate. Uh, his, he received no schooling. And he's an older man, he's probably in his 80s, and he grew up in the deep south, and he carries a gun actually, he carries a concealed weapon. And he told me something very interesting. And he said, I've never had a problem with police. Um, I've had many encounters in my life, even in a racist South, which was much more racist back then. And, and even up here, I've had many encounters with police and I've never had a problem. And the issue was I gave them respect and I always received it in return. And so all these encounters I've seen are all punctuated by a lack of respect. And so it always escalates kind of from there. That respect is crucial to moderation. And so uh, um, if you do not show that respect, um, are you behaving in a just way? I will also mention uh, um, Socrates' comments about the guardians. So uh, police officers uh, uh, um, in the Kalipolis, these would be considered the auxiliaries or the guardians of the state. So the people who supported the rulers. And the idea was a great emphasis was supposed to be meant on their training and how they were supposed to behave. <clears throat> in those days, they were basically two things. One was a form of physical training and the other was uh, mental training. And their mental training at the time was a sort of combination of music and poetry. Socrates said that the training had to have a balance between the two. If the physical training was overemphasized, the guardians became brutish and they became too forceful. If the music and poetry was too emphasized, they became too soft. Uh, they, were, they, were, they were not suitable for some of the, the difficult things that the guardians had to do, like war. And so you had to find a balance between the two. 
And so in our modern day society, we give lots of you know, physical training as if they were preparing for war, but we aren't training them necessarily as much in the soft side, meaning may not want to go to music and poetry, but maybe mindfulness or meditation or yoga or things that help them sort of decompress, de-stress for their kind of mental and spiritual wellness. Uh, because they're doing a lot of terrible and you know deeds in the sense that they have to deal with some of the worst people of society. And they need to be able to sort of recover from that. And so instead of sort of trying to defund them or trying to get rid of them, the idea is you should improve their wellness, meaning give them training to help them become softer so that uh, um, they have more balanced lives and that as a result they can they can approach these problems in a more balanced respect. I will say one last thing about moderation. Uh, um, and so the idea is, the question at the beginning of the talk was, should the few benefit at the uh, expense of the majority? Meaning, uh, in, a, in a just city, would the few benefit at the expense of the many? And so... In general, most people would say no. The few should not benefit at the expense of the money, at the expense of the many. And they would say, "Look at the rich; they benefit from you know everyone else, and so they should not benefit at the price of the city." But I would also say that would be the same in the other direction, such as when compensation for people is giving out. So you have all these encounters with police, where suddenly the family is compensated twenty million dollars or $30 million, and uh, that would be excessive, in my opinion. Meaning, the few should not benefit at the expense of the many. A city should not bankrupt its coffers uh, to, to support one, to compensate a single family. The idea is if you have to take that money from other parts of the city, education, healthcare, or any kind of things, there's no way you can give that money to a single family in a just fashion. Other people will say, yes, it's insurance, or it's this or that. But the idea is that it's not a just thing to do. Compensation should be, uh, um, this should be bound by the limits of moderation. And so because these things are not moderate, uh, I fear that is they also not just. We come now to the last virtue of justice. So Socrates defined justice of each doing their own part and not receiving anything other than what belongs to them. And so the idea is you do not meddle in things that are not your own in a just city. So a cobbler remains a cobbler and he does shoes. A soldier remains a soldier, he does ore. A doctor remains a doctor, a lawyer remains a lawyer. Uh, um, you know, a, a restaurant makes a, maintains a restaurant. And the idea is you do not, inter, in, you do not meddle in things which are not your own. In democracy, however, we kind of do the opposite. We kind of ask everyone their opinion on everything. And so when, when something passes, uh, whether it's war or, or the pandemic or things like that, or how to solve a crime or, or the nature of justice, uh, we, we, we ask everyone what they think. And we have democratized expertise. So we ask what the restaurant owner thinks of how the pandemic's being managed. We ask what the bystander thinks of how the war is being run. We ask, uh, 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 you know, all sorts of people about their opinion on crime and how to solve this and to solve that. 
And the idea is it's, it's a DIY republic. Everyone does everything. And what happens is that uh, um, sometimes the people who should be listened to aren't listened to uh, because everyone's listening to other people who have no expertise on the subject. Because everyone is intervening in things that do not belong to their own. Meaning people who have no training in war should not be opining publicly to millions of people on the war. People who have no training in healthcare should not be giving medical advice. People who have no ability to comment on, you know, police justice or things like that should not be commenting on them or agitating for things. Each should be doing their own. And if you do not have expertise in that area or a background of training or education, uh, it would be wrong of you to agitate for something which you do not know about. This is why, as I said, justice is incompatible with a great amount of freedom. Justice requires much compulsion if you wish for this to occur. You would have to take away a good bit of freedom of speech and action. Uh, so you people would not be allowed to do or say certain things in a just city. Meaning a citizen should not be able to decide what is lawless and what is lawful. Uh, it is a citizen's duty to obey. Um, otherwise, you will have a lawless society. So in the pandemic, there was a sheriff's office, I believe this was in California, who said that they were not going to enforce the mask mandate. And I thought this sets quite a terrible example. If a sheriff can decide which laws they wish, would they wish to execute, does that not imply that a citizen can decide which law they want to follow? In the same way, there was a, a news article which said the local health department wasn't going to enforce the laws, the health law of New York State. And so if the local health department can decide which laws they want to enforce, uh, then can people who decide they don't want to wear masks, is that the same thing? Is that not injustice? So when everyone believes they have the ability to decide what is just and what is unjust, basically you come to understand that the riots for social justice are really no different from the January 6th insurrection. These are all people who feel they have suffered injustice and therefore they are free to do injustice and resist. As I said, uh, um, to have justice present, you need to have those four, four virtues. So, so the other three virtues, wisdom, courage, moderation. And so if you do not have those, it would not be prudent for you to be engaging in sort of unjust acts. This leads to the idea of uh, um, sort of uh, citizen's arrest. And so how is that kind of compatible uh, um, with justice? And so I, re I was reading this Mencius dialogue today, and, and basically it said, uh, um, you know, what is the nature uh, of punishing another state? Uh, and and Mencius said something like, if you, you know, the people, the king said, people are asking me to annex this state and attack it. Um, what do you think, Mencius? And Mencius said, uh, um, you know, it depends on the people. If the people are there are supporting you and they open you with open arms, uh, then you should do it. 
because the people are asking for liberation because they're being oppressed by a tyrant. So if your will accords with heaven and heaven supports the people, you should do it because it is, it is the just thing to do. Another dialogue the king asked <clears throat> mentions, um, you know, is regicide permissible? And Mancha says, no, it is not permissible. And then the king cites two instances of people who were sage kings who wound up killing another king. And he said, well, how does that compare with that? And Mancha said something like, a tyrant is not a true king. A tyrant is someone who has done terrible deeds and kind of harmed the people. When you kill a tyrant, it's not regicide. It's called punishing a tyrant. And so if you are ready and willing to do sort of an unjust act or to use violence, basically these are the conditions where you can kind of do it, where you are punishing a tyrant. Um, but the, the four factors of things should be there, justice, courage, moderation, and wisdom. Meaning you should not be doing it out of anger. You should not be doing it out of sense of revenge or hatred or desire for glory. Meaning you are doing it for the sake of the people and doing it the sake of justice, as if you were a sheriff. Meaning you're not a vigilante. That is the difference. That is the difference between the man who takes revenge on the person who has wronged him versus turning him into the state. You, are, you have abandoned your ego as you are trying to do this. And the last question is, can injustice occur in a just city-state? Uh, and yes, the answer is yes, if the greater good is being served. So, so the stoic model of the foot, uh, um, it, it, a foot does not exist in isolation. In isolation, it's great if the foot were never dirtied or muddied or stepped on thorns or never got bloodied. But so the foot is a part of the body, and sometimes for the greater good of the body, the foot must get dirty, the foot must be stepped on, the foot must get thorns in it and things like that. <clears throat> For the greater good, sometimes injustice may occur. So in a <clears throat> army or in a military, to win a battle, some soldiers must die and be sacrificed, and some must live. And so it is you know, not good for that individual soldier, but for the greater good. <clears throat> the justice may be present, even though these things are kind of happening. And so if you take that to the broader expanse of life, of what is just and what is unjust, things which appear just or appear unjust may be in a bigger picture just overall, meaning a minor injustice now leads to a greater sense of justice and, and goodness in the future. And so this is sort of the long view of things and not judging things as good or bad, uh, because something that appears unjust now leads to changes down the line where justice can occur. This will conclude my talk. Uh, suggested reading, uh, Plato's The Republic, and basically all of other Plato's dialogues. Uh, Confucius's The Analects, and the Book of Mencius, and the Book of Mo, Master Mo, uh, for Moism. If you have benefited from this talk, I ask that you complete one good deed in return. The deed is not bound by size, only by sincerity. Thank you for listening.